Christopher. And as we go through this story, you know, many of us, um, during the time when we went 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we made reference to this as an illustration of how to flee sexual temptation. And oftentimes when we come to this passage, yes, it is in this passage, that story. But that is, in a sense, one of or the low-hanging fruit in this passage. So if you just glance through that chapter 9, it's 39, you will see that four times Moses, who is the writer of this story, tells us something about the relationship of the Lord to Joseph. In verse 2, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 3, it says, his master saw that the Lord was with him. That is Joseph. If you go down to 21 of that same chapter, Moses writes, but the Lord was with Joseph. And in verse 23, the last verse in that chapter 39, because the Lord was with him. Once again, here is Joseph in a foreign land, sold by his brothers, and once again, bought, this time, by a high officer in Egypt. He is in a strange place. He is in a foreign land. And I believe here, Moses is writing this to the Israelites to remind them, to assure them of God's presence with them in times of prosperity as well as in times of adversity. I don't know when you feel or think that God is closest to you. Maybe it's a time when you have gotten what you so much desired when you achieved huge success when you passed an exam, when you had your prayers answered, when you had what you wanted, when in a sense you were in the pinnacle of your life. Maybe that's when you think God is mostly with you. What about in those days when you just had the news of the death of a loved one? Right, those days when you look at your exam result and it's an F. Or those days when you lost a job or you lose a job. Or when you are involved in an accident. When you lose something most important to you, do you believe, do you think that God is with you even at that time? See, Joseph is in a terrible time of his life. He is in a horrible period of his life. Moses is reminding us that even in that time, at that period, the Lord was with Joseph. You see, God's presence, God's providence, God's guidance for his children doesn't just cover the times of success. It doesn't just cover the time when we miss failure. It doesn't cover the time when we are saved from a fatal crash. It doesn't cover the time when we go to the doctor and he says we are all okay. God's presence, his providence, his guidance is with us. Even in those times where we experience the fatal crash. 
he is with us, even at those times when we experience a terminal diagnosis. God's presence is with us when we do not feel that he is there. So going back to Psalm 139, we're reminded there that God made each and every one of us. He made us who we are, male or female. He made us by his divine providence. He blessed us with the families that we belong to, the experiences that we have, the environment where we find ourselves, the context where we are growing up, and probably you might think the unfortunate decision to come to Cyprus. God is still with us. He's the one guiding that. He guides your life every single day. And he directs all things, as we were reminded last week, to fulfill his purpose. And this happens in times of prosperity and in times of suffering. So the title of this sermon is Joseph, the Lord was with him. And I want us to just take a look at this story in two scenes, but in those scenes we will see that there are some subtexts or subpoints therein. But first, Joseph in Potiphar's house. Now Joseph has arrived a new place. Here he is, a slave. Potiphar is identified as the officer of Pharaoh. And Joseph's master. In verse 2, he's referred to as his Egyptian master. And we see all over the chapter that Potiphar is referred to as Joseph's master. But first, we see that even though Joseph is a slave in a foreign and strange land, he is successful there. The narrator emphasizes that although Joseph is in a low position, He is in the high position of his buyer. The three times as the narrator repeats that Joseph's master is an Egyptian. We we later hear as the story develops that though he has fallen into slavery, he is prospering there. Verse 2, the Lord is with Joseph. He becomes a successful man. Verse 3, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and caused all that he did to succeed, he found favor in his sight. Even in a far land, away from his family, away from the promised land, Joseph is experiencing success. He's successful in his work. He's prosperous. And this is not because Joseph is wise or has some abilities above the other, Moses emphasizes that it is because the Lord is with him. See, instead of Joseph becoming an inferior field slave here, with few opportunities for advancement, with few opportunities for growth, rather he is promoted. And indeed, he rises in status. So look again at those verses. We see in verse 4 that because of Joseph's success and because he found favor in the eyes of his Egyptian master, he put him in charge of 
all that he had. In verse 4 and verse 6 mentions it again. He left all he had in Joseph's charge. And in verse 8, where Joseph was speaking to his master's wife, which will come to, Joseph reminds her that all that is in the household, the master has put in his charge. And this literally saying that these things are in Joseph's hand, in his power. In a sense, he has become the personal assistant of Potiphar. There he's referred to as the overseer, the chief manager of the household. In a sense, all that, just, all that Potiphar owned, all his possessions, all his work, all the fellow slave, slaves under him, we're now under Joseph's authority and power. And although he is a slave there, he has become distinguished. He has become successful because the Lord is with him. He has not only become successful, he has become a source of blessing. In verse 5, if you look at verse 5, it says, From the time that he had made him overseer in the house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. See, the Lord had promised Abraham that in him, in his seed, in his family, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's in chapter 12 of Genesis. And we see, in a sense, an initial fulfillment of, of God's promise to Abraham. The one who is a seed of Abraham, who has come from the line of Abraham, finds, finds himself in a foreign land. But because of his presence there, the Lord's blessing flows to this one family. This family that doesn't know the Lord. This family that worships pagan gods. Yet but because of Joseph's presence there, he has become a source of blessing to Potiphar. And because he is a blessing, Potiphar somewhat trusts him and has a confidence in him. He has no concern for any other thing at the end of verse 6 but the food that he ate. And this, food, this very idea of the food that he ate might refer also to his private affairs, to the things that personally concerns him. He, as in a sense, says, Joseph, you can manage every other thing except one thing, my private affairs. That is the exception that Potiphar gives to Joseph. So we have seen that Joseph has become successful. He has become a source of blessing to this family. And thirdly, the, the story that echoes more often to most of us in this chapter, Joseph is tempted. And Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. When I read this, I wanted to comfort those of us who thought of comforting those of us who are not handsome in form and appearance. And remind us once again that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. You're welcome, Penny. <laughs> but once again, Joseph is handsome in form and appearance. And this is how the Bible describes his mom, Rachel, and David in one son. He is, in a sense, well built, he is very handsome. He has the, the physical 
attributes of a man. Yet, unfortunately, his good looks did not bode well for him. His physical appearance sets him up for temptation that follows. You see, physical appearance can actually bring with it temptations. And that is exactly what Joseph experiences here. In verse 7, his master's wife cast her eyes on him. She says to him, lie with me. You see, Joseph already found favor in the eyes of his master. Potiphar had confidence and trust in him. He was, in a sense, in a position of authority in the house. And now he has an opportunity with the wife of his master to cement his place in Potiphar's household. He already found favor on his boss's side. Now he has the attention of the wife. And Joseph could just say, well, this is the opportunity for me to seal myself in this household. This is an opportunity for me to take my stand here, to have my stand to seal myself in this household. But Joseph refuses. In verse 8 and 9 gives us the reasons why Joseph refuses. He mentions three reasons to have. First, my master trusts me. He has confidence in me. And it will be wrong for me to betray that trust and confidence. Verse 8, he refused and said, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. And for Joseph to obey his master's wife would be to betray the trust and confidence of his master. And secondly, he reminds her of who she is. He says he is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. And can tie this back to the end of verse 6, where he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. That's why most commentators would say that that refers to his private affairs, which would include his wife. And because she is his wife, to obey her would be to disobey his master. And thirdly, Joseph says, that this would be great wickedness and sin against God. You see, many of us may not face the temptation of a master's wife or a boss, or maybe you do. Whatever reasons that you give to avoid such temptation, the biggest reason is that because it will be great wickedness and sin against God. Joseph wishes to be loyal to his master, yes. But most importantly, he wants to be loyal to God. This is the God who has made him successful and prosperous in a foreign land. This is a God who has protected him in the land of slavery. And see, when we sin, when we fail to obey God, when we fail to be loyal to him, 
we forget the God who has saved us and to whom we belong. And that is what, what sin is. We turn away from him. We forget him. We forget that we belong to him. We forget that to sin will be to do a great wicked thing against God. And yet, she persists. She does not agree with his reasons. And day after day, she, she haunts him. She makes the same request, verse 10. But Joseph would not listen to her, to be beside her, or to be with her. Joseph has made up his mind to be loyal to his master and to be loyal to God. In verse 11, she has an opportunity finally. She doesn't give up. And she pressures him day after day. And he wouldn't listen to her. So one day, Joseph, we are told, comes into the house and all the other men of the house are gone. And he's alone in the house walking. She comes quietly to him. She seizes the opportunity. She grabs him by his garment and repeats the same phrase. Lie with me, she says. Joseph has only one, one response. He has only one option. To run away. To flee. And thinking of this and Reminding myself of the physical attributes of Joseph. Told that he was handsome in form and appearance. He was strong. He was well built. He could easily have hit her. He could easily have, you know, just done any other thing. But he reminded himself that she was his master's wife. And the only option he had was to run away. Was to flee from it. Was to leave his garments with her. And as Paul reminds us in Corinthians, with sexual immorality and sin generally, there are times where the only option is for us to run away. Because God always makes a way for us. The question is, are we going to make, take the way that God makes open for us? And here, the only option that Joseph had is being isolated with her, being alone with her. And realizing that she is, was his master's wife, the only option he had was to run away. But he had given her an evidence, an evidence to, to frame him. And this is exactly what she does. She, she cooks up a story. She comes up with a story, which she narrates first to her household and to her husband. She has his garments, verse 13. He had left his garments in her hand and had fled out of the house. She called out to her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. When I got to this verse, I reminded myself that nothing is new under the sun. Because here she plays the game that Many people today play the ethnic slur. You know, it is one thing for a slave to have 
attempted, as she said, to rape me. It's worse for a, for a foreigner. It's worse for one who doesn't belong here. So nothing, in a sense, is new under the sun. Mankind, because sin is sin, and the heart of man hasn't gotten any different. It's the same game that people play today. And here she refers first to his ethnicity. And then she goes on, I counted at least three lies. First, she, she lies that he tried to rape her. And secondly, that she cried out with a loud voice. And then the third one, she, she in a sense, she has a half-truth. He left his garment and fled. But why did he leave his garment? Because she had held on to it. She plays the ethnic card. And she lies. She frames him. She cooks up a story. She narrates it to the household. And later on, to her husband. Verse 19, when his master had the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. He became enraged. His anger was kindled. He became angry. And Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. You see, Joseph was fortunate here. Because his master would have decided to execute him. And this, that was the usual punishment for idolatry and for offenses like this. But rather than executing him, rather than killing Joseph, he throws him into a prison. And as, as we hear this, as we, as we read this, we ourselves might become enraged. Because this is clearly... Injustice. Here is Joseph trying to be loyal to his master. Here is Joseph trying to be loyal to God, to be obedient to God. Here is Joseph trying his best to refuse his master's, his master's wife's advances. Here is Joseph rejecting evil and following God's law. But where does he find himself while doing that? finds himself in prison. And we know of those who, yes, are in prison for right reasons. There are those who are there because they are falsely accused. And here is Joseph guarding the obedience and trust of his master. Here is Joseph trying to sin against God. The result is prison. Isn't it injustice? Where is God when Joseph, who is attempting, or trying his best to be righteous, to obey him? Where is God? Where the righteous one is suffering. And this point was brought home to my memory again once, um, some two or three weeks ago, when I was in the bus. And I sat beside um, the guy and he, he asked me what the time was. And I told him and from that we, we began to talk and I got to know that his name was Joseph. 
and I was surprised um, because from his accent, he wasn't um, someone from the West. So I asked and he said he was from Asia. And I asked, so you're Joseph, how, how come you're Joseph? Well, he grew up in a Christian home, but he's no longer interested in the things of the faith. And I asked, well, why? And his reason was, well, if there is God, then why? Why is there suffering, pain, and all the mess that is in the world? And that is a question that people often ask. Not just the question of injustice, but of suffering, of pain. Well, the people actually ask if there is a God, why has he not punished me for my sins. People hardly ask that. But we are more concerned about, yes, rightfully so, all the suffering and pain out there. But what of the ones that we are personally responsible for? Do we really think about that? Do we really think about the fact that we all deserve God's justice? Do we actually think about the fact that no one is righteous. And because no one is righteous, God being just has to deal with our sins. And the Bible reminds us that because none of us is righteous, there was only one who was truly righteous. And that very one is the one who is able to take away our sins. Though he was righteous, He took upon himself the wrath that we deserve. And yes, there is a lot of injustice out there in the world. I'm not sweeping that under the carpet. There are those who are in prison. Though they didn't commit the offense. Here Joseph finds himself in that situation. And we are Where is God here? And that's why I said the the big deal of this passage is that in the days where Joseph was being successful in Potiphar's house, when he was being a source of blessing to Potiphar's family, when Joseph was faced with temptation, now that he's experiencing injustice and he's in prison, Moses it's reminding us that the Lord was with Joseph. That the Lord protected him. That the Lord's presence was with him. When Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor at the sight of the keeper of the prison. The Lord was with Joseph as he prospered in Potiphar's house. Now the Lord is with him as he is falsely accused. The Lord is with Joseph not only in prosperity, but also in adversity. The fact that Joseph escapes the usual death penalty can be attributed that the Lord was being with him, protecting him. 
even in the depths of despair, the Lord shows his steadfast love to Joseph. The Lord shows his kindness to him. Here again, Joseph is, in a sense, back to his usual experience of success, even in the midst of adversity. As a result of the Lord being with him and showing him steadfast love, he finds favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Joseph is given a quick promotion again in prison. Just as he was overseer in Potiphar's house, just as he was a boss, just as he was the chief manager there, he becomes overseer in prison. And the chief keeper, the chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was, he was the one who did it. The keeper paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. God's presence is here once again with Joseph and making him prosperous and successful even in prison. And whilst in prison, from chapter 40, Joseph becomes a source of blessing. Here again, we have two dreams, just as we had last time. And uh, during the Zoom meeting, we had questions about dreams. And here again, we encounter another set of dreams too. Potiphar's cupbearer and his baker, in a sense, his, his servants, the cupbearer, they're the ones who, who took care of his cup, his drink, and had to test it and make sure that it was safe for the king to drink. And his baker took care of his food. And in chapter 40, we are told that they committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. He was angry, just as Joseph's master was angry with him. He was, he was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he confined them in the same prison as Joseph. And one night, they both dreamed. And their faces were troubled. They were worried. And here, Joseph, in verse 8, when he looked upon them and asked, verse 7, why are your faces downcast? They said to him, we had dreams and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. And as they narrate his dream, the, the dreams, once again, I would just I want us to, in our spare time, read through this chapter. They narrate the dreams, and Joseph tells them that the interpretation, in a sense, is one. For the cupbearer, you will be restored. And for the chief baker, you will be killed. And Joseph looks at the cupbearer and says to him, When you are restored, Please remember me, verse 14, when it is well with you. And please do to me the kindness to mention to Pharaoh and so to get me out of this house. See, that word kindness is the same word that is interpreted steadfast love in verse 21 of chapter 39. You see, this is Joseph in prison experiencing God's steadfast love, God's kindness, God's goodness. And Joseph is here appealing to the cupbearer, and rightly so, to show him 
a kindness, a steadfast love, so that when he is restored, he would help him get out of this place. See, this, this very word is not just the ordinary love or kindness that we think of. It is one that involves going out of someone's way to help the other person. It is the inclination of someone's heart to show grace to someone who he loves. It is more about modern social ex- expectations. It's one of taking full responsibility for someone. And here's Joseph freely experiencing God's steadfast love and kindness, God's unmerited favor to him in prison. And we know the story that the cup bearer forgot Joseph. This steadfast love, this kindness that Joseph had appealed to and desired for, from him, he didn't receive. The cup bearer forgot him at the end of verse 23. The chief cup bearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. He completely forgot him. Maybe you have shown kindness or favor to someone and you are expecting something in return. And sadly, the person didn't come true. Maybe someone had promised something to you. And when it was time to fulfill the promise, it wasn't met. See, this steadfast love of God, this kindness of God, is one that none of us can merit. See, here is the message of the gospel once again, that God's act of forgiveness and salvation in Christ is rooted in his steadfast love to us. The love of God extends beyond our expectation, beyond our duty, and just as in our human relationship, when we you know, try to win someone's favor, someone's love, someone's admiration, we tend to import that to our relationship with God. And maybe you are striving daily you know, to win God's love, God's approval, to win God's kindness. And so you seek ways to do that. Maybe by being very active in certain things, by giving by giving alms, by being nice to people, by being kind, by being good, and you think through that, you can win God's steadfast love. See, the message of the gospel is that, yes, that love of God is available to everyone, but it's not at your cost. It is not by your own ingenuity or by your own wisdom or by the things that you can do. It is freely given by God. Because God demonstrates his love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. There is God's steadfast love that yet while we were sinners, he died for us. So stop trying to end God's love. You cannot. You cannot in any way end God's love. What God calls on each and every one of us to do is to repent and trust in him. And to see in the cross of Christ, his love poured out to us. That the only righteous one who suffered for sinners is the very source of God's steadfast love for us. 
And that love of God never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But even though the chief cup bearer forgot Joseph, the Lord hadn't forgotten him. Even when you feel forgotten by God, the Lord never forgets those he loves. Because when God saved you, it wasn't when you were good. It was when you were a sinner. So his steadfast love never ceases. And this is the Lord who is with Joseph. This is the Lord who is protecting him. This is the Lord who is with him, who never forgets him, who never forsakes him, even when he is forgotten. So I tied it up together. I want us to, to remind ourselves first that obedience can get you into trouble with people. We had earlier referred to read that Joseph was being loyal to his masters, to his master. Joseph was being loyal to God. Joseph was being loyal to God and being obedient to God. Yeah, that gets him into trouble. That gets him into prison. And being obedient to God can get you into prison. Being obedient to God can get you into trouble. Might not be a literal prison. Being obedient to God might cost you friends. Being obedient to God it means that you are persecuted. And in the New Testament, Peter writes and, and to his readers and reminds them that it's pointless if you're being beaten for doing what is wrong. But when you're losing friends, when you're being persecuted for doing what is right, you should expect that. Because obedience to God can get you into trouble with people. Secondly, to once again remind us that God is actively involved in the lives of his people. God is actively involved in Joseph's life. Last time in, in, verse 30, in chapter 37, I used the phrase, the unseen hand, because I was pointing forward to this very chapter. That there, there was no mention of God. It seemed as though God was absent in it. And here in chapter 39 and 40, to see God is all over the place. Was God less active in 37? No. He was there. And in the same way here, God is actively involved in Joseph's life. And totally to remind us that God is with us, even in the worst situation. So it seems Joseph cannot catch a breath here. He's, he's been sold into slavery. He's been framed. He's in prison. He's moving from one trouble to another. The things seem to be getting worse and worse by the day. And for you, it might seem that things are getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And nothing seems to be going right. What is God's promise to you? What is God's promise to his people? A few days ago, I was at CIU, and for those of us who are at CIU, you know that there is a big screen at um, here and there where people sit. And just passing by, um, there was an ad running. And 
you know, encouraging people to apply to the school. And lady reading the ad said, listen to your feelings and apply. I was like, well, if I listened to my feelings every day, I wouldn't even be out of bed today. Can you be confident that God is with you? Is it because there are certain days that you feel so happy, that you feel so emotionally strong? Is that what you are relying on? Is it your circumstances? Is it the things that are going on around you? Are those the things that you should trust? Yes, our emotions are good, they can be right. They can point to certain things that are wrong and also certain things that are right. But that is not a grounding of our trust and belief in God. Because when you do not feel it, God is with you. When it seems as though the whole world is falling, or it's falling on you, God is with you. When it seems as though nothing is going right, God is with you. Because the same Jesus who, who died on the cross and rose again, which is why we read in Matthew 28, and he told his disciples to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. What does it say? That I am with you to the end of the age. See, that is God's word, that he is with us. That is the word of Christ. That is the word of our Savior, that he is with us every day. He is with his church. He is with his people. For believers who are in troubled places, who are facing persecution, who are in places of adversity, of turmoil, God is with them. For those of us who are here in Cyprus and it seems nothing is going well for you, and it seems we are a very small church and nothing... It's happening. His word says he is with us. And what we don't trust is not in our numbers. What we don't trust is not in the strength of whoever stands before you. What we trust, what we hold on to is God's word that can never change. Just as he was with Joseph. Just as his steadfast love was with Joseph. God is sweet with us. So what are you? What are you trusting? What is your very source of hope and, and strength and encouragement this day? What are you holding on to? It has to be God's word because that's what never changes. And God has spoken. And because he has... We can hold on to it. We can trust it. I've, I've often used um, this, I use this illustration in the children's talk. I'm absolutely sure we are all forgotten, so I will use it again. It's like you, you have a ring and you put it in the middle of your hand and you clasp your hand. And I think it was TJ I used and he's way stronger than me. And you call on the children to, you know, get the ring from, from your palm. No matter how much they, they try, because you are stronger than them, they cannot get the ring. The question is, what is or who is stronger than God? 
Who is stronger than Christ? Colossians tells us that for those who are in Christ, we have died and our lives are hidden in Christ in God. You are hidden in Christ and what is stronger than him that can take you away? There is absolutely nothing. And so you can trust him and you should trust him because he has said that he is with us. And nothing can take us away from his steadfast love. Nothing can take us away from his grip, from his grasp. Nothing. His promise is that he would never leave nor forsake you. We'll be singing Psalm 23 shortly. That's a psalm that we all know very well. That is a psalm that we all grew up reciting. In verse 4 of that psalm, David writes, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So you might be walking today in thick darkness. Or maybe, you do not know, maybe you are about to get into one. David says, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 6, surely goodness and mercy. If you use the ESV, the footnotes there says, all steadfast love. It says, surely God's steadfast love shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. This is God's promise to his people. This is our only source of hope. Just as the Lord was with Joseph, we can be assured, just as Moses is assuring the Israelites of God's presence with them in times of prosperity, as well as in times of adversity. Let's sing that psalm as a choir helps us, Psalm 23.